that remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning as we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had uh, seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let, uh, you may be seated. The conclusion of Mark's gospel here in chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, presents an apostolic epilogue to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The variations in this passage can be accounted for without questioning its validity as authentic to the original text. Let me just review these uh, quick points. I won't go into depth, but, but I want you to think about this again. Mark's gospel is widely accepted as having the apostle Peter to be the primary source. Mark may have been interrupted and stopped at verse 8, ending the apostle Peter's direct contribution. Mark is identified as associated with the apostle Paul in Christian ministry, and Mark is identified most personally by the writings of Luke. So Mark may have written this conclusion part, verses 9 through 20, at a different time and may also have had a different source. But, but this is my conviction, and this is which I present to you, that the Holy Spirit authorizes this conclusion to Mark's gospel, verses 9 through 20, as originally inspired and providentially preserved Holy Scripture written by Mark, perhaps co-authored or referenced by Luke, completing Mark's gospel with an apostolic epilogue. And I, what I mean by an apostolic epilogue, I hope will become clear as we go on this morning. Now, remember at verse 8, these Christian women's overcautiousness, they were overawed, they were frightened, and they went out without telling anyone, at least immediately from the vicinity of the, of the uh, tomb there. This should not be misrepresented as unbelief, as the balance of verses 9 through 20 focuses on this theme, where Jesus shames unbelief. And these women go and are, are first witnesses to his resurrection. But the eleven didn't believe. And then uh, the two others that were walking in the country that Luke tells us on the way back to Emmaus, they go and tell them. And the eleven didn't believe them either. So you can see that the transition here from verse 8 forward is a connection, a theological thematic connection that's important to be observed. And that is a, a, a call to belief. 
And this specifically about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his commissioning the gospel through the apostles and the founding of the apostolic church. So the resolution of the gospel paradox that we've seen in the gospel of Mark by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with power over sin and death is a faith resolution. Uh, From the very beginning, when we started this series, straight talk about Jesus Christ, that straight talk is uh, an urgent proclamation to challenge us to faith, a faith resolution. So Mark wrote this gospel account expressing a mood of urgency, as we said, cultivated by straight talk about Jesus Christ. And it's just as relevant, pertinent, and as empowered by the Holy Spirit today as it was when the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write. Now, the New Covenant Christian gospel is sourced in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And that's still the message that is commissioned to the church. In the apostolic church, as I said uh, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek as we confess the Apostles' Creed this morning, I said, when I'm asked if there are apostles in the church today, my answer is yes, they're just all in heaven. And that's what Scripture tells us. The apostles are in heaven. But the apostolic church continues with that commission that Christ gave through the apostles. And it continues on earth, even as Elder Brown prayed this morning, uh, reflecting upon the scriptures, that Christ is purifying his church. And there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will, sometimes more, sometimes less pure. We have striven and desired to be pure as we can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him and not to court uh, the world and its approval. That means oftentimes that we're swimming upstream and that that we are uh, facing opposition. And we mustn't look, even as I I, I drew your attention to the passage in in 1 Peter this morning, that it's with the eyes of faith and not with the eyes of the flesh. Whom having loved the Lord Jesus, we have not seen him, but we love him by faith. And as confirmed to us and revealed to us by the living word of God. So there is that uh, supernatural dimension That supernatural dimension has charged all of the gospel of Mark, challenging us to believe that the the, uh, gospel paradox is a personal paradox of saving faith. As we look this morning at verses 9 through 14, which I've already read uh, in your hearing this morning, uh, we have Mark's post-resurrection account of Jesus' appearances Now, what Mark writes here conflates, that it it draws together stories from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And and I don't want you to be disturbed when I say that here we have a conflating of these stories. We have a drawing on these various witnesses and stories, putting them together. I'm not saying that Mark depended on Matthew and Luke. I'm saying they had the same sources. The view that Mark's Gospel was written before the Gospels of Matthew and Luke further suggests to us that these resurrection witnesses were widely shared and retold before they were written down. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't throw us a, a, a curveball. We say, yes, the, the gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had first-hand accounts. They heard the witnesses. Some of them were witnesses themselves. And so the fact that Mark wrote this and that it agrees or shows connection with Matthew and, and Luke's gospels only confirms for us The witnesses were not silent. The witnesses were telling and retelling. These faithful women who came to the 11 disciples 
cowering in fear and, and, and unbelief and struggling. I don't mean they weren't believers, but they were daunted in what had happened. And yet these women were faithful to witness to them that the Lord is alive and he is risen. The story was being retold over and over. The, the two witnesses from Emmaus, when they made haste and went back to tell the eleven, you think they only told the eleven? Not so. The stories were told and retold of the witness of the resurrected Lord. And eventually they were written down under the guidance, inspiration, and providential care and preservation of the Holy Spirit of God. In verses 15 through 16, Mark's record of Jesus' great commission has a cosmic, a worldwide scope grounded in the authority of God's creation order because he has authority over all creation, over all the world. He received that authority from God the Father Creator. And in his mediatorial role as the risen Savior, the whole world is the scope of Jesus' saving arena. And it is the gospel into the whole world that the apostles are commissioned to carry and through the apostles and from them as the church would go forth and would expand around the globe to every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation of people. So Mark's record of the Great Commission from Jesus has a cosmic scope grounded in the authority of God's creation order, empowering the new uh, covenant Christian gospel as the message of saving faith with the covenantal sign and seal of baptism, pledging union with Christ. And I want you to pay attention to this. Uh, it's important to note that the majority of the first generation of Christian believers were Jewish people. They came out of Old Covenant Judaism. They left Old Covenant Judaism in recognizing it's being done and fulfilled. They believed and confessed Jesus to be the Messiah Christ. And so they entered into a new covenant, leaving circumcision behind, leaving the Passover behind, leaving all of the Old Covenant rituals, leaving all of the judiciary laws, leaving all of what Jesus said is no longer to be a national earthly kingdom but for a better kingdom and a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. And Christian baptism was for adults and for covenant promised children recognized as household baptism. That's how it started. So don't be troubled when people try to convince you that there is only a, a baptism that is valid upon profession of faith. No, it's a new covenant. And a new covenant has new uh, signs and seals. And the old covenant sign of circumcision has been replaced by baptism, enlarging God's covenant promises. It is to covenant children, but it's also to adults who profess faith in Christ who have never believed. Those who transitioned out of Judaism today, those who have never been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who come out of unbelief, who come out of false religions. We would baptize and, and rejoice to baptize adults and children. A baptized fathers and mothers and their children together in household baptism. I believe that hopefully we'll see more and more of that as we see God moving and bringing people out of darkness, out of the darkness of false religions, out of the darkness of philosophies of uh, materialism and of confused identities, that God will redeemingly save and touch people and bring them to himself by the power of the gospel. They believe and are baptized. We're not ashamed of that. We celebrate that as the power of the gospel. So don't ever be thrown off by those who confuse this passage. 
And then on into verses 17 and 18, Mark's record of Jesus' great commission also includes Jesus authenticating the new covenant church by the signs and acts of the apostles. This is very, very significant. And oftentimes, again, uh, we miss the significance of how Christ commissioned and empowered the apostles and their oversight and, and the limitations even of the signs of the apostles. That they were for transition and for purpose. Uh, I like to refer to them as those signs and powers that were either immediate or mediate. Now some refer to them as extraordinary or ordinary. Some refer to them as having ceased. But rather than getting into those squabbles about words, think of it this way. Let's use, for example, this issue of, of the question of tongues, of languages. There are those who want to, to confuse the point by saying tongues are something other than known languages. But every reference we have in Scripture, other than the Apostle Paul correcting abuses and counterfeits, is to say that these tongues were actually languages and that the apostles on the day of Pentecost were immediately endowed with the ability to preach the gospel in languages they had not previously known. People were able to hear and understand the gospel in their own language or their own tongue. Now, the balance of Scripture tells us that's the primary intent, to be able to spread the gospel, to see how it is exploding, and how the gospel goes to every kindred tongue, tribe, and nation of people. Did you hear that? Every kindred tongue, language of people around the world. And so here we have the apostles and others in the apostolic church immediately endowed by the Holy Spirit to be able to preach the gospel and to communicate to people in languages they had not previously known. Now later on, what do we find happening? We find people after the apostolic era, we find people going forth into places of the world to minister the gospel to people whose languages they have never known, but how did they learn them? They had to study them. Today, missionaries go into areas of the world learning languages and dialects and translating scripture into language and dialects that they didn't grow up with. How do they know them? They have to study them. So it's now mediated rather than immediate. It's something that's mediated through study and through calling. I've jokingly told you that I wish I had the immediate endowment of the Holy Spirit to know Hebrew and to know Greek. But I had to learn it in a mediated way. I had to do, learn it the old-fashioned way. I had to study. I could put my Greek notes under my pillow at night and sleep on them. But in the morning, they did not immediately transfer into my head, into my memory bank. I actually tried this one time. When I was traveling back and forth over the weekends to work in a church, I put my Greek notes on a cassette. A little plastic, you guys, not, some of you don't even know what that is, a little uh, plastic tape recorder uh, cartridge. I would record my notes. O-A-S-A, abonete I would record my notes on a, a recording of a tape, and then when I would be driving back on Sunday night from having worked in a church over the weekend, I would pop that tape in, and I would listen to it driving up I-85. And guess what I found out? I was really boring. And I couldn't play that tape because it kept putting me to sleep. And I could not play my Greek notes because they were just too boring to try to drive at midnight <laughs> coming back from working in the church. But you get the point here is that 
That gift of the Holy Spirit continues in the church to carry the gospel around the world into languages and dialects of people, but now we have to study to do it. We don't have the immediate endowment of the Holy Spirit for it. That's the way I see it, and that's an illustration and an example for you. So we have Mark's record of Jesus' great commission. It includes Jesus authenticating the New Covenant Church by the signs and acts of the apostles. And so I don't really like looking at these as literal or symbolic. For example, when Jesus says here to take up snakes or to take up serpents, I don't think the question here is whether it's symbolic or whether it is literal. I think it has to do with supernatural power manifested in the natural world. And here's what I hope to explain to you by that. Jesus says that they will cast out demons. Now, Jesus trained and commissioned the apostles to superintend the limits of this sign and action intended to show his defeat of the devil's works. We're told that Jesus was manifested. John, an apostle, says Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. This is one of the ways that Jesus continues to show he established his church through the apostles. He manifests his power over the demonic world and their ability to cast out and to superintend others casting out demons. As a matter of fact, we have an example in the book of Acts where there were seven sons of a high priest who tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demon said, we know who Jesus is, we don't know who you are. And the man who had the demon jumped on them and beat up seven of them. To tell us that this is not some kind of magical incantation. Jesus' name is not some kind of talisman or magic spell that we use. It is by the power of Jesus' name that we obey him. And so I do not agree with those who say that there is continued demon possession today. I believe there is demonic influence, and I believe there are demons that are real. But the power of Jesus and his name through the believing church is a power greater than the devil. So we didn't need to be preoccupied about trying to cast out demons. I've told you before, the only spirit you need to know about is the Holy Spirit. And I stand by that. Jesus goes on to say they will speak with new tongues. I want you to consider something here. I've already mentioned to you about the, the, the uh, tongues being languages and known languages and, and Paul correcting the abuse and the counterfeiting of that whole issue about languages or, or tongues. But I want you to note something here that I think is, is often overlooked. Jesus says they will speak with new languages. And, and this word, this designation new, is the same word that's used for all aspects of the new covenant. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. There is a new way, a new and living way to enter the, the presence of God. Over and over and over again, this designation new is used for all aspects. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Over and over again, this designation new is used for all aspects of the new covenant. And as well, the New Testament emphasizes that speaking with new or human languages is to communicate the gospel understandably. Do you know that when this was written in the ministry of the Ascension and the following ministry of the apostles in the apostolic age, do you know that the language that you and I speak today, modern English, was still over a thousand years in the future? I'm preaching the gospel to you with a new language that wasn't even known at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now what about a new language? A new language comes with a new vocabulary, a new theological language. It's also interpreted by the meaning of the new covenant. Here are new meanings and new words that are added to the new language of the new covenant gospel. 
That's a new word that has its meaning in the new covenant. Christian. A new word with a new meaning in the new covenant. Trinity. A new word with a new meaning of theological import. Doesn't mean that these concepts and these ideas didn't exist in the Old Testament. But now, they're coming to light with a new language of the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ. Incarnation. Way of the cross. Resurrection. Kingdom of God in heaven. Apostles. Church. Spirit of adoption. Agape. Regeneration. Born again. I could keep going. I bet you could add to that list. What a happy um, kind of exercise. Let's see what words we can add. I, I got to thinking and I thought, man, somebody ought to collect a dictionary of new covenant words. Oops. Already been done. It's called the New Testament. How many new covenant words can you find in the New Testament that are brought to light and meaning by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant. And then Jesus says they will take up, they will lift up servants. And once again, my point to you is not whether this is literal or or, or figurative or whatever. It's supernatural. Other references from Jesus' teaching help explain this. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 10, you would see Jesus when the 70 return and they're rejoicing in the power of the gospel and they're preaching in the power over spirits and demons. Jesus says, I saw... Uh, you will trample under uh, serpents and scorpions. And he likens this to demonic powers. And so the point isn't that somewhere out where they were walking down the road to preach the gospel, they stepped on a snake or they stepped on a scorpion. That's not really the point. The point is the supernatural power that exists in defeating the works of the devil. And uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So what we do in preaching of the gospel, we lift up the dead snake. Because the power of the cross of Jesus Christ defeated the devil. He bruised the serpent's head. And so every time we preach the gospel, we're preaching the power of Christ over the devil. You know the serpent motif is introduced with the biblical account of original sin and continues prominently throughout the scripture, even to the end. Another scripture account germane to this statement is when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, and Aaron's rod or staff transformed into a serpent and devoured the snake staffs of the Egyptian sorcerers. Aaron's rod or Aaron's staff was ordained by God to be the canon or the measure representing the truthfulness of the power of God's word. And if you go back and read that account, you'll see that repeatedly, not through every um, uh, plague, but repeatedly, Aaron's staff is recognized and used as the measure, as the canon of God's word. Strike the water. And it turns to blood. And so I think that is a good example to us that we're not talking about whether it's you pick up snakes or scorpions or or that kind of literalism, but rather it's in terms of the power of the gospel over the works of the devil. Now in the ancient world of Bible times, poisonous snakes and their venom were used as biological weapons. They would dip uh, arrows in them. They were also used for some medical applications, trying to build up uh, uh, resistance. 
There were magical superstitions that were a part of snakes and, and their involvement in false rituals and, and idolatrous worship. And there were secret evil schemes that tried to employ snakes against enemies. So Jesus says this ancient enmity continues, but the power of his cross, his victorious death on the cross, shows what? And this comes from the book of Revelation. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. So this is what I'm saying to you that the, the scope of Scripture teaches us about Jesus' statement to take or to lift up uh, serpents is a sign of the defeat of the devil. It's not a statement that approves a religious subculture of false teaching about faith that you can handle poisonous snakes. That's idolatry. And Jesus goes on to say in connection with this lifting up and this demonstration of the defeat of the devil, and if they drink anything deadly... It will by no means hurt them. Now I want to point out to you here in terms of the Greek grammar, the force of this particular verb means an action that could possibly occur. And if they should drink anything deadly, it is not an intentional action that is done. And when they drink deadly. No, if it, if it should happen. So it's a potential uh, point that Jesus is making. He is not giving a command to start drinking and sipping poison to show faith. And this may indicate a protection against the common practice of poisoning, either by persecution or a trial by ordeal. The Apostle Paul warns not to drink the cup of demons in idolatrous worship rituals. And so what we must say is that there is no way that the Bible approves of us testing falsely God and trying to show faith and doing something so foolish, where Jesus is saying that he is giving protection against those who are going to be targeted, targeted for uh, murder, targeted for assassination, targeted in persecution, targeted in false tests of ordeals to be brought before. And Jesus says that he will attend them and they will not be hurt. And so for a time, we know that in the book of Acts that God brought many deliverances. And we also know in time, even as is referenced back to the book of uh, Revelation, there are those who are martyred for the name of the Lord Jesus. How often did the Lord Jesus protect Peter and protect Paul? We have accounts in the scripture of God's delivering them. And yet there came a time when the Lord said, Now that time of deliverance is over. Now I'm going to receive you in heaven with you sealing your testimony by your lifeblood in that you will die for me. And so here Jesus is saying, He will protect us against the enemies and the manifestation and the inspiration of the devil and the demons working those to try to destroy the people and the, the testimonies of God's people, those who preach and those who witness, those who go among the heathen when they are targeted with poisons, with evil schemes, with attempts to murder them. Jesus says, I will protect you until the time that I'm ready to receive you to myself. So do not be afraid. And that continues to today. Those around the world in various places that go into hostile uh, lands with the power of the gospel, believing that God will protect them until he's ready to receive them. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Once again, Jesus trained and commissioned the apostles to superintend the limits of this sign in action to demonstrate his continued presence, authorizing ordination in the new covenant church. So once again, I would go back to the immediate and the immediate in that there were times, and we read in the book uh, of the Bible and the Gospels of Jesus doing, and then on into the book of Acts, of Jesus immediately using the apostles and the early church to bring healings, to demonstrate his power and presence. And over time, that transitioned, even in the book of James, where James says, call for the elders of the, earth, of the church, anoint with oil those who are sick, and if the Lord is pleased, he'll raise them up. If they've committed sins, they recognize, and, and the question is, am I being chastened because of my sin? Or is my testimony being proven by faithfulness to God? So Jesus doesn't remove every sickness. Jesus doesn't heal every uh, hurt or every disease. He will sanctify and use those things. The Apostle Paul is a a prime example when he said, I prayed and asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh. Whatever that happened to be, uh, Paul felt like it hindered his ministry. And yet the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so every struggle with sickness or disease or injury is not a testimony of the Lord being against us. James says, submit yourself to the elders of the church with the anointing of oil. If you have sinned and confess sin, and the Lord removes that sickness. But otherwise, the Lord will even sanctify and use sicknesses and weaknesses and disease and hurts and injuries and the weakness of our flesh. He will sanctify and overcome that by the Spirit with testimony to His grace. That this outward body is decaying, but our soul is kept by the power of God for salvation for all eternity. And we have a new body coming because Jesus is risen from the dead. Amen. So let us not be confused by this great commission of the Lord Jesus here recorded for us in Mark as an apostolic epilogue. The balance of the New Testament and especially the book of Acts confirm what Mark wrote about these signs of the apostles and the apostolic church. And so in verses 19 and 20, we have Mark's record of Jesus' ascension. Emphasizes the special, promised, real, supernatural presence of the glorified Lord Jesus working together and confirming authentication by his ordained preaching and signs. Now I'm going to read that one more time because I want you to get the impact of this. Mark's record of Jesus' ascension emphasizes what? What it emphasized then and what it emphasizes now. The special promised, real, supernatural presence of the glorified Jesus working. Working together and confirming authentication by his ordained preaching and signs. So Jesus' real presence was not morphed into a physical form by preaching and signs, but by a supernatural faith connection through words and actions in the natural world. Preaching the gospel calling people to repentance for the apostles and the apostolic church, manifesting the signs that Jesus said would authenticate that he had commissioned them and continuing on from the apostles to our day. The special, promised, real, supernatural presence of the glorified Jesus Christ working through his church. So the new covenant Christian church, as authorized by Jesus through his commissioning the apostles to continue straight talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God in heaven against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Water baptism is an outward sign 
of an inward working of grace to whom that grace belongs. It's not in the water. The words of institution set it apart to say what this water represents is a supernatural, real, special presence of Jesus Christ. Each time the visible church faithfully observes the Lord's Supper, proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes again, Satan, the devil, that old serpent, is being trampled underfoot and lifted up as defeated. This morning when we observe this Lord's Supper, I'm praying that it will improve your baptism and testimony, that you are under the authority, under the power of the, of the work of Christ through the gospel and a real spiritual presence with you, more real than that water of baptism that was once applied. The Holy Spirit working with you through the rest of your life as being born again into the family of God with a living union with Christ. And when we come to this Lord's table this morning, showing the Lord's death, proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes again, do you know that every time we take up this bread and take up this cup in faith with the words of institution telling us what Jesus did in His body and blood, the devil is trampled down. He's underfoot. And like a, a dead snake on a stick, he is a defeated enemy because Jesus lives. And our testimony is that Jesus lives and so do we by the promised salvation of God. That's the gospel of the new covenant. That's the message of Mark. It's a message that we delight in. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel.